the UK Psych Health and Safety and ISO 45003 podcast. The goal of the UK Psych Health and Safety podcast is to be your source of information on psychological injury prevention, health promotion and best practice. In doing this, we aim to rapidly advance the global practice of psychological health and safety in workplaces and adoption of best practices from the ISO 45003 standard. We will be looking at fully integrated approaches to managing psych health and safety and well-being strategy in the workplace that meet the needs of everyone in the organisation. Your regular host will be Peter Kelly, Senior Psychologist with the UK Health and Safety Executive and Sheila Lord of BMR Health and Wellbeing. Every week we will have a guest episode from the fields of health and safety, human resources, psychology and academia who are leading the way in their corner of the globe. Hi and welcome to our latest episode of the UK Psych Health and Safety podcast. Uh, my name is Sheila and this week um, sees the start of Men's Health Week, uh, running from the 12th to the 19th of June. Um, so this week's special guests are Paul Bannister uh, from Man Health uh, and Emily Pearson, who's been a previous guest on the show uh, from Our Minds Work. And I'm going to try and get this right because it's a bit of a tongue twister, but we're going to be talking about blokes brains dare I say it balls uh, and brawn um, so we know that for any organizations to thrive employees need to be on top form and that's physically and mentally but in the UK men's health is unacceptably poor there's war- around one in five men dying be- before the age of 65 mostly due to preventable health problems and we also know that the highest rate of suicide is in men although that number is growing in women Um, Many wellbeing initiatives are struggling to engage male employees um, and that's what we're going to be talking today um, about with with Emily and Paul. So welcome to the show both. Emily, do you want to introduce yourself and remind our listeners of of who you are and the work that you do? Yep, definitely. Good to see you again, Sheila, and thanks for having us back. So I'm Emily Pearson. I'm the Founder and Managing Director at Our Minds Work. We literally exist to help organisations to implement um, a, a strategy for better mental health and culture change in the workplace, focusing everywhere from the individual through to manager training, policy, stress prevention. Um, over the past couple of years, uh, I've been working very closely with Paul. Um, we were, I think we were introduced about four years ago, weren't we? I think, Paul, I think we were introduced by uh, our PR manager who was a consultant who was working with both of our organizations at the time and we've kept in touch all this time we kept saying we need to do something together there's just something about the work that Paul does and what our minds work do that you know we felt was really important so it took us a good couple of years to really figure out what it was and I think what we saw over the past five six years since workplace mental health has been a thing brand new kind of sector and field to work in we've seen a lot of initiatives being put into place that exactly what you've just said there are very generic um, can be very female-led led from HR mental health first aid as an advocates putting themselves forward to openly talk about mental health so we've seen this angle that when we looked at it together we thought there's a bit of a gap here hmm especially around um, you know some of the industries the very male dominated industries which then meant that 
their men, many of their men were at even higher risk of these health problems. Um, so we got our heads together and said, look, what, what can we do to improve men's health together? And we came up with the Manbassador programme. So, you know, hoping to give your listeners a little bit of insight into understanding um, men's health and um, what may be some of the barriers that their organisations are experiencing within engaging the male workforce and maybe some tips on how to improve engagement to improve men's health. Fantastic. So, Paul, tell us about you. You're new to the podcast. We've not had you as a guest before, but uh, really great to meet you. It's uh, lovely to meet you and thank you for having me on the, on the show. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, my name's Paul Bannister. I set up an organisation called Man Health in 2015. Um, largely because I felt that there wasn't enough services available for men who were struggling with their, their mental health. Uh, I, I, I went through a really torrid time with my mental health uh, and I really needed someone to speak to and I felt that the services weren't available um, and I really looked into the value of peer support uh, and created peer support groups around the northeast of England uh, from 2016 onwards, and so we've been running peer support groups for six or seven years now, and other peer support services, um, and it makes a world of difference to to get men in a safe space, non-judgmental space, um, and it really helps men to open up and talk about issues that they've never never talked about for many many years, uh, and it makes a huge difference. And we've 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 built a real community of men who support one another. But during that journey, we, we were always invited, particularly around Men's Health Week, to go into business and talk about men's mental health. Um, and it, it, when I started doing that, I realized that, you know, there's men's health in this country is really, really poor, the health outcomes for men uh, and the lack of awareness around of men uh, and their inability to risk assess their physical and mental health was something that became really, really apparent when I was going into businesses. Um, and so we looked at the some statistics and looked at the, the five biggest killers, preventable killers of working age men. And I put a program together, which I, I still deliver to this day across the country, which is very, very well received about raising awareness about men's health. And then Emily and I got together and said, look, there's just nothing out there that, that would, you know, it's, it's OK going, going into an industry and doing a one hour workshop once a year but we need something on the ground all the time that you know that really helps the men constantly model the good behaviors uh in terms of their health both physical and mental and and you know introducing good role models into the workplace because it's something we need to be doing all the time uh it's an integral part it, it, we need to be constantly on it and being a man myself i know that we we do need to be told constantly to do anything uh constantly reminded yeah a bit a bit nagged would we dare say there paul yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. so so you know it's a really interesting point that you both raised there about you know these a lot of these well-being initiatives they're not very male focused and let's be honest a lot of the well-being initiatives that we've got are very generic it's a very overarching program they're not specific they're not targeted to specific departments, um, individual challenges, team challenges, that type of thing. And you're right, these, in, these initiatives, uh, you, know, you know, if there's one group that they do tend to really 
not take into account is men. So how do we develop workplace programs that actually target men from both a physical health perspective and a mental health perspective? So from a physical health and, I, and you know, I would compare, you know, as women, there is this program, there is this awareness, there are these campaigns, we go and we get our smear tests, we go and we get our boobs checked, that's routine, we wouldn't not do that. So why is that different with men with some of the and, and maybe Paul, you know, just talk to our listeners about, you know, what some of those five biggest killers are in working age men. Yeah, yeah I, I haven't got an answer to that question, why these screening processes aren't in place for men. It just it, it defies logic to me. Um, you, you, I, I, I often talk to talk about men's health outcomes now, and, and I, ref, I refer back to the late '60s, early '70s, when there was a many campaigns and these screening processes were introduced for women because the health outcomes for women were, were quite poor in the '60s and uh, early '70s, and these screening processes were introduced, and, and that is fantastic that, that these these screening processes are saving lives of many of our female colleagues, but. At the same time, why wasn't why weren't these screening processes introduced for men? Um, you know, to, you know, just to check the testicles, you know, to, to go for a prostate check. It's it's commonplace now for women. It's 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 women know they have to do these things. It's part of their life, and they, and they and they 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 are very knowledgeable about their health. Women they talk about it all the time. Men don't talk about their health. It's it's almost taboo to talk about you know the prostate it, it's taboo to talk about feeling your testicles and you know checking checking for growths on your testicle and it's we need to break that to you know that 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 taboo and we need to bring these things out in the open and we need to make them common conversations that men are having because if, if we don't the health outcomes for men are going to continue to deteriorate and they are deteriorating uh, life expectancy for men's gone down for the first time in 20 years. You know what I mean? So the, this, this, these aren't good. And the health outcomes for men, particularly in more deprived areas, are something like 20 years below, below the health outcomes for men from the richest boroughs in the country. And, and that, that's something that really, need, really needs to be addressed. And men spend a lot of the time in the workplace. So why not use the workplace as a vehicle to starting these health campaigns and starting these conversations? Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree, Paul. And the statistics are stark, aren't they? And that um, taboo topic is exactly one of the, the problems that the work that we are doing together is trying to solve is really tackle male specific stigma. You know, as a as a woman who, you know, Sheila, we've had many conversations where you know, straight away, we're talking about female things and we're, you know, we're, we're great about, you know, pushing for the menopause. Women are great at standing up together and really pushing for what they feel that they need and that they believe in to improve their lives. Men don't do that. They just don't do that. So then it, it gets unvoiced. Nobody is kind of pushing for improvements for men's health. It, not at the same level that women tend to do. So this mm. kind of taboo male stigma around just generally that being unwell or having a health problem is a weakness. Yeah. And, it, you know, we, we understand that a lot from mental health, but it's the same with physical health as well. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's so true. I mean, it's almost like a badge of honour to soldier on and carry on. My brother is an absolute nightmare, you know. He'll, he'll continue to work when he's not physically, um, you know, in a right place to work. He's needed New Year's for 10 years, but he's carried on working. He's the worst for getting himself checked out for anything. It take us mm. two years to get him to go to the doctors, mm. you know. I'm lucky that I'm such a, um, you know, the person that Paul mentioned before, I'm the nagging sister that pecks him and pecks him and, make, and makes him do it. Um, so how, how, you know, we struggle as, as wives, as partners, as friends to engage men in healthy kind of conversations, if you will, everything you've just said there. So how on earth do workforces go around tackling this and engaging that? Because that you know, based on just what we've said so far about the nature of the beast of where we are now, how do employers start to affect support and change for male employees? Yeah, absolutely. And I think Paul's mentioned one of them already is having those positive role models in the workplace who are like Paul, the, the, the ambassadors of the world, of the workplace who are willing to be out there and um, role model and help seeking behaviours for um, improvements for health. Looking at the way that we engage men through um, imagery, if you, you know, if you look at your kind of general employee, employee assistance programme, leaflet, or website, it, they try to be inclusive of everybody where you know 99% of the time inclusivity is definitely what workplaces want to be able to, 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 to achieve. But when it comes to tackling really complex issues like this, we have to be posit positively um, exclusive to be able to, to tackle men. So even down to the marketing messages, the images that are used, um, the language that's used, thinking about terms like using um, mental fitness instead of mental well-being so even just the language that is really going to connect with the audience so even starting that the, your marketing messages to put out there to engage men and how do we reach out to men and this is always another issue of when we see you know why a lot of uh, counseling you know treatments and therapies aren't engaged in when it comes to uh, mental health recovery by men, because a lot of it is about men reaching out to ask for help, which is one of the hardest things to do for anyone, never mind um, a man who sees himself in social norms of you know masculinity, being having to reach out for help can be really difficult in itself. So waiting for guys to reach out for help when it's a little bit too late, it, it isn't really proactive or preventative. So we need to reach in to men and reaching in in a little bit of a different way as well. You know, the time to talk, time to talk day campaign, come and sit and have a cuppa and talk about your mental health. It doesn't quite wash with guys. However, you know, come and have a, a football five-a-side football team and a break time against two departments um, while we kind of indirectly raise awareness of physical activity and the impacts to prevent heart disease is just a completely different way of engaging um, men into understanding their health and what support is available for them when they need it. 
um, Paul will have loads of insights, more insights as well from, you know, engaging men on, on what, what do men actually want, you know? Yeah, and I think that, that that's the stuff I'd be interested in to hearing about Paul is you know how just from a from a female in you know perspective in life how do we engage men? <laughs> Joking aside, yeah. you know how do we do that? Well, I think it's 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 in terms of uh, the the workspace and in, in I think that there's there's this myth that men men won't talk. I mean, I've done talking groups now for many many years. Men will talk if the environment is right, if they've got a safe space where it's non-judgmental, and that's a challenge for a workplace. If a, if a workplace is putting a well-being program into place, the starting point has got to be speaking to the employees, particularly the male employees, and about how best to engage them. It's no good imposing a well-being strategy onto a workforce, you know, and, that, and that's what tends to happen. It, it, it you know, we'll, we'll put a well-being committee together we get all these people join the with all great intentions join the well-being committee we might get a few people from the senior management a few people from the hr you'll get very few people from the shop floor probably joining the, joining that well-being group you may you may if you're lucky but but none of it is gender specific it's we need to we need to really become more aware that we're losing so many men to suicide we're losing so many men to heart disease the the, the, the time off work in this country is 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 unbelievable it's what 70 million working days lost each year you know and that's just due to mental health we we, we need to start doing something in the workplace and that starts by engaging the men asking them how we can best reach them how we can best communicate with them yeah, and, 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 and then putting these these processes in place uh, you know and that's what the man buster program is all about it's a it's a you know it's it's about building that infrastructure and, yeah. and allowing giving the men a voice within the workplace yeah so it's, that's typical isn't it we find that you know we find that um when we, we when we're talking to organizations is that well-being strategies well-being programs are always put together with the best of intention but with very little um if any consultation with staff as to what they want so somebody goes yeah. off looks at what's trending on twitter and i'm, I'm i am very you know oversimplifying here uh, but goes off with the best of intentions to put something together but at no point has anybody been asked what would make the biggest difference in terms of support at work and that's mm -hmm. men and women that's yeah. that's just general yeah. workforce isn't it yeah. Um, so what are some of the some of the more successful initiatives that you see? We always talk about consulting with and, and asking people what they want. What are some of the other things there that you've seen that work, Paul? Uh, well, in workplaces, when I, when I go in, the, 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 the most successful workplaces are the ones that engage their employees, mm. without a doubt. Uh, you, you know, and within, you know, peer support groups within the workplace where people can voice their opinions, uh, you know, and, you know, employer satisfaction surveys, um, you know, employee ideas, anything like that where, where, where the employees feel that they, they, they're going to be listened to. And, it's, and I, I do go into workplaces and I've worked in some industries where they have these ideas boxes and these, these schemes that you can, um, you, you can go along to these meetings. Unfortunately, I've also been into places where they have all these great schemes in place, but then people on the workforce don't see these changes happening. And that's it. Well, we can put all the yeah, 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 yeah. That we like, but unless we take action, and that yeah. 
you know, and I think we overcomplicate it a lot. And I just break it down into one simple acronym a lot of the time when I'm speaking to people, you just need to act. Mm. And by act, what I mean is you need to ask employees what they want. Yeah. When they then tell you, go back and consult with them mm. and then take action together. Yeah, exactly. And if you do those three things yeah. consistently mm. and continuously, mm. you will then get to where you need to go. And I think a lot of yeah. a lot of organizations or a lot of approaches are looking for an immediate fix with an immediate solution, an immediate result. Mm. And it you can't do that in no. this in this area, can you? I mean, just playing devil's advocate for a minute, you'd be like, because I can hear some like maybe past bosses I've had in a, you know in a previous life, and even me being guilty of this in my thinking in a previous life. But oh my god, if we've got to have people, if we're supporting the, you know, we've got to do peer support for men, we've got to do well-being initiatives for men, then we've got to do it for women, then women going through the menopause and and kids that are just coming into the workplace after COVID. When we're going to get any work done? You know, my, my reply would be, uh, what's, your, what's your most valuable asset? There's a recognition now, particularly after the pandemic, that, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, they, 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 we, we were expendable as employees, but now, you know, with the, the great reset, we know how difficult it is to, to engage staff, we know, and, uh, to keep staff uh, and employ staff. Uh, and it, we, we've swung the other way now. The, your, your employees are your biggest asset. Uh, and you'll know better than me, Sheila, you're an expert here. It's an integral part of the health and safety strategy, isn't it? Consulting your employees. I mean, it, 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 does it get your, does it allow you to, to, to get greater credit with your health and safety strategy if you engage employees? And, um, but yeah, yeah, I think it's. I mean, absolutely. You're right. You know, the health and safety stuff and this risk assessment piece, which, if I'm honest, I would say is probably missing um, from. I would say in the upwards of the 90 percentiles mm. it's missing in most well-being strategies and people say well we do a, a, a we do an engagement survey that's our risk assessment no it completely is not your risk yeah. assessment yeah. you know what we want to know what we want to understand is you know you can't you can't just say you hand out PPE equipment and you've done a risk assessment for for, for safety you wouldn't get away with that on a construction site yeah. you wouldn't but we don't apply that same those same principles and we've always had this carrot rather than a stick mentality mm-hmm. but you know and, and you see so much stuff and we get Matt Hemley we've talked about this before haven't we about yeah. oh let's make mental health first aid a legal requirement well actually why don't we just work within the law that we've got yes. and get a little bit more stick than carrot that's another kind of avenue that we can look at because duty of care doing those risk assessments for health exists in legislation mm-hmm. since 1974 yeah so why are we not putting the health into health and safety? Yeah. Absolutely. I completely agree with you there, Sheila. And I just want to go back to that point that you made that is just so vital for any of this to work is that behaviour change. And exactly what you've just said there, a lot of organisations want to put an initiative in place and to see an instant change in behaviour and Behaviour change is one of the hardest things that we can ever do. And I just posted this on LinkedIn the other day, actually, is um, a really great example of this. And actually how how this campaign targeted men specifically change. This is now. Do you remember Clunk Click Every Trip? Yeah. Yeah. 
we remember it now like what what is it 50 almost 50 years mm. later say 50 we, years Emily that makes it, I'm telling you <laughs> it's nearly 50 years later we still remember that plunk click every trip and we know exactly what it was about now that 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 campaign came about to increase um, the behaviour change of putting your seatbelt on, that was the only behaviour that we're trying to change was putting your seatbelt on when you got in the car because people were dying because of car crashes. And back in those days, the only people who were driving cars were men. There was no two cars. Women weren't generally driving. You know, if a woman was driving her own car, you know, that that was very, very different, very progressive for those days. So the Clunk Click Every Trip campaign was focused on the behaviour change to increase safety in the car and putting seatbelts on. It, it was very, very clear what it was trying to do, and it was very clear that it was engaging men. So, you know, if, for your listeners, go and have a look on YouTube, watch it, even if you just want to have a laugh at the old clothes <laughs> and the cars that they had back in those days. Just so that, you know, we can really see how it actually targets men. And one of the interesting ways on how it targeted men for behaviour change, it wasn't talking about their health and safety. It was talking about, think about your kids and your family if you're dead or you're, you know, in hospital unwell. So, you know, another way to engage men isn't directly about this is your health. Actually, it's more indirectly about the impact that it can have on your family um, to stimulate behavior change. And that clunk click every trip 50 years later has created a safety culture in cars. So not very often these days that you get in a car and somebody's not wearing a seatbelt. So behavior change can happen, but it can take a long time, but it has to have a repetitive message and it has to be clear on why we're doing it and engaging the audience directly in the right way to be able to, to get that behaviour change yeah. as well. But it's hard. It is yeah. hard to do. But it goes back to that point you said earlier, Sheila, about the nagging. You said the nagging. With a, with a man bastard programme, there's a constant. Like, mm -hmm. I, I'm going out doing loads of training next week but it's because it's Men's Health Week. Other yeah. weeks of the year companies aren't doing anything absolutely with a man buster program it's a constant there yeah you're modeling you know really good behavior uh, and you and, and you're teaching good habits within the workplace and that that's where the man buster program is, is yeah essential in my opinion yeah and this is where for me you know where you know you know where i go on about it all the time but this is for me where things like the iso standard the forty five thousand and three standard I'm hoping we'll be able to affect that change mm -hmm. because it makes it more systemic in a format and yeah. a language that boards understand based around mm -hmm. continuous improvement. And I always say, you know, mm -hmm. you walk into any organization and you would say, who's responsible for quality? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we'll all merrily put our hands up because marketing, oh, we are. Because, you know, that's what we're telling people about. And then manufacturing will be responsible for quality. And then you say, who's responsible for customer satisfaction? And you get the lovely jazz hands across the whole organization. Everybody's doing that. And then you say, who's responsible for well-being at work? Mm -hmm. How many hands are going up? Or how many fingers are pointing that way? Yeah. Yeah? 
and and it we've not got it to that same level of um kind of a collaborative approach where we yeah. all own this mm. and yeah. that we have system we have systemic ways of reviewing you know of customer satisfaction we have net promoter scores yeah for quality we will have our return stats and our reject rates and our you know what went wrong and what continuous improvement activities that we've taken workplace well-being well we've got mental health first aiders okay so how many times have people engaged with them what feedback have you got what's that peer support network doing how many hours are they consuming what are you doing there what is there any trends that are underlying um, that need to be done are you have you still got the right skill sets to be doing this are we seeing different patterns and behaviors that we need to train you in different areas to support mm-hmm. we're not collecting that data we're doing mm-hmm. one piece yeah we're not putting all the other yeah. structure around it and for me yeah, yeah. that's key. programs like your ambassador program programs like mm-hmm. you know education around menopause then overarching programs or frameworks because that you know for me that's what an iso standard is it's a ring fence Mm-hmm. to keep things safe and mm-hmm. structured yeah um, and i think that this is the only way we can really do well-being well yeah, long term I, yeah. I, I absolutely agree and that that question that you asked about whose responsibility is well-being and you get the fingers pointed at somebody else and i i do believe that some of the things that we see with organizations is there hasn't been given necessarily ownership, um, like a joint level of ownership of well-being, like sa- like safety's given, isn't it? So everyone knows safety's everybody's responsibility, and I think that gets missing a lot from from the initiatives because they're very kind of um, they're pointed at people rather than collaborative and empowering for people. So, you know, if you see, oh gosh, you, you know, you'll, you'll know this, the, um, the big rise in resilience training that everybody was, you know, everybody needs to be more resilient, you know, as the piling on the demands and work pressures and going through restructures, you just need to be more resilient. So then the, there is no collective ownership of it. It's constantly, these initiatives are constantly pointing fingers at people as an individual, rather than having more of an ecological approach to it, where you've got the individual in the center, but then you're wrapping around services and support, and it's seen as more of a, of a collective way of being. Um, so I, I totally get that. And I think, I don't know if you've seen this, Sheila, as well, but we've, We've seen this a lot from especially the larger workplaces with the um, the probably the more heavy senior leadership teams where you've got like 20, 30 senior leadership teams. There can sometimes be this other in effect, this kind of them and us. So senior leaders are putting in interventions for them, for the, you know, the, the lower um, employees and not actually using or engaging in those services or interventions themselves or even sponsoring them or leading them. So you also get that kind of well-being ivory tower stuff that um, it's seen for everybody else rather than for us. There is still that massive disconnect and trying, no, we we still have these huge problems on a wider generic well-being scale. Um, You know, these are also problems that will will come into play with companies who are interested in something like the Ambassador Programme 
and how do they embed it into the workplace so that it doesn't become a them and us thing and one of the things that we talk about with clients who you know really want to embed the, the ambassador program is that it needs senior sponsorship and leadership we need ambassadors from your ceo down to your frontline staff so that it is seen as this is for everyone there is no hierarchical ambassador we're all ambassadors within the program rather than i'm just the ceo and i'm just going to sign off the budget for it mm-hmm. so that that true leadership um has to come from being on the same level as i'm i'm a male ceo but i'm a ambassador and i'm here for men to improve men's men's health and well-being in the workplace yeah absolutely so tell us a bit more about the ambassador program um guys and girls definitely where where should we start do paul do you want to maybe start us off with you know why why the ambassador program i know we've said the one in five men in the uk are dying before 65 due to the five biggest killers do you maybe want to start us off with what those five biggest killers are Yes, of course. Yeah. So the, the, the Mindbuster program came out of this, this workshop, as I mentioned earlier, Sheila, uh, because we were looking at the five biggest preventable killers of working age men, uh, which by heart disease by far is the biggest killer of, of uh, working age men in this country. Um, largely preventable in many cases, um, a lot of it down to lifestyle choices. So again, with the Mambasta program and, and getting someone to model good, you know, good mental and uh, good behaviour within the workplace, and talk about diet and exercise and and risk assessing yourself is is, is really really important. Um, so that, that that's heart disease, which is by far the biggest killer of working age men in this country. And the second biggest killer, which is something I. Uh, which I'm always amazed by when I go into workplaces with, uh, I think it's it's something like, sorry, up to nine men a day dying from um, prostate cancer, the second biggest killer in the workplace. And the level of knowledge around the prostate gland of most men I talk to is negligible. They, they know very, very little. And I always start the session by asking three questions. What is it? What is it for? And where's it at? And very unlikely that most men in that room can answer them three questions. Yet if you asked a a woman a similar question about part of her anatomy, that they, you know, whatever would be, women are much more equipped to be able to give them answers and much more aware. Uh, So so we talk about the prostate, where where it's at and what it does. And we try and dispel some myths about prostate uh, about the digital rectal examination, which most men believe that is the first thing that's going to happen when they go and see the GP, that the GP is going to be rushing to shove his finger up the bum, which is not, not the case. Uh, and that, 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 that puts a lot of men off, you know, going, going for that check. So we talk about the prostate and, and what it is and what it does. And then we talk about lung cancer. Um, lung cancer is on the decline because of the great public health campaigns uh, run by you know, over the last 10, 15 years by various governments and uh, obviously the increased taxation and the smoking ban. So with the, we also talk about vaping. 
Um, so we, we, when we talk about lung cancer, then we talk about bowel cancer, which is the fourth biggest killer. And the, the screening process for bowel cancer is being brought in now. So everyone in this country on the 55th birthday gets invited to a bowel cancer screening, which is fantastic. Unfortunately, men aren't taking advantage of this free screening process. Uh, I think it's about 70-30 in terms of men. And then finally, we go on to talk about the, the fifth biggest pre preventable killer of working age men, which is depression and suicide. Um, suicide still being the number one killer of men aged under 50. So, and we give some strategies for, for that, but the whole, the, the man ambassador program is all about equipping men to be able to risk assess their own physical and mental health, which they are absolutely useless at. And as a man myself, I can say that uh, we, we, we don't take enough care of ourselves. And the ostrich syndrome is very, very prevalent amongst men, and it is killing too many men um, in our country, and it needs to be addressed. And that's what the Manbuster program is all about. Fantastic. So this is talking to men in a language that they can relate to then. So you've designed this specifically. Yeah. yeah. Um, in a way to engage with them uh, yeah. on, on their level, really, isn't it? If you go yeah, yeah well, yeah. why wouldn't we? We, we, we? we men talking to men. We know how to engage other men. That's what we're skilled at. Hmm. Uh, you know, and engaging a man in the conversation is quite is very difficult. And, you know, if you talk to any man, you meet any, any man in the pub, and the first question they're going to ask you is what football team you support and, hmm. uh, you, you know, or what car you drive. But engage them in, in any level of conversation about physical health or mental health is difficult. And you have to have, you know, the strategies in place to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and you need to be equipped to be able to do that, how to listen to men yeah. um, and how to engage them. Listening is the key. Yeah. And that's really what the, the man ambassador, the, the way the man ambassador program works is it's a service delivered um, to, to men in the workplace by men, male volunteers in the workplace as well. And really the ambassador role aims to raise awareness of these five biggest killers of work and age men in an indirect male-friendly way. So using male-friendly activities rather than come along and sit around and talk about your prostate, you know, over a cup of coffee. Yeah. So engaging them in a different way. And they, they're trained to share their own stories um, so that they're relatable to men, to tackle that male-specific stigma and normalise help-seeking behaviours as well. And they also will provide access to confidential listening and signposting and the trained in suicide intervention support. And to help the ambassadors actually achieve those aims, we do a couple of things. As you know, Sheila, mental health first aid training on its own to me is one of the biggest risks that we can implement as an initiative in any well-being program it's about the infrastructure and safeguard and monitoring and support that's provided to those people that's absolutely essential to have a safe service absolutely. of people in this role so we help the organizations to set set the service up with our blueprint our ambassador blueprint which covers everything from safeguarding and all the way through to engagement and recruiting, um, monitoring the service and actually launching the service as well, because we look at it as a service blueprint. So the idea for this is 
If you've ever been in, in McDonald's in a, in a different country, we've all been there, have we? We've all, all been abroad somewhere and just fancied a um, box of chicken McNuggets or something. They're easy to find, they all look the same, the menus are the same, they run the same. And that's because McDonald's has a service blueprint that they literally duplicate every time they wanna set up a new McDonald's. So if you go into 10 companies with the Manvassador program in, they will all be like a McDonald's. They'll all look the same, they'll be running the same, they'll be monitored and supported in the same way because of that blueprint. Another part of what it, what it does, actually, it creates this network of men in the workplace who are raising awareness of these killers, um, you know, increasing help-seeking behaviour, role model and positive health behaviours as well, and really getting the information out there to, to their male colleagues. And the other thing that it does, it comes with its own campaign as well. So the campaign is called the Where's Your Head At Mate campaign. This campaign is aimed to um, help men to assess their mental health in a really simplified way by using a traffic light system. And what the Where's Your Head Out Mate campaign does is it can help to prevent suicide by helping men to risk assess, hopefully before they reach the red section and are in crisis, but then also know what actions they can take in each of the traffic light sections to improve their mental health and access support. So that campaign, once it's launched, again, you know, where's your head at, mate? Very male-focused, um, simplifies risk assessment of mental health, and it helps them to identify what support is available, both internally and externally from the Manbassador programme itself. And obviously, we then provide ongoing support for those ambassadors in that role to make sure that we're, we're you know, supporting them in this really important role that, they, um, that they're going to be implementing back in the workplace. So that's really the programme and, and what it aims to do and, and how we support workplaces to do that. And some of the research that you, you already know about is there are some workplaces and industries out there who are seeing, um, unfortunately, you know, higher rates of these killers, especially um, suicide, higher rates of suicide, like the construction industry, HGV logistics, HGV drivers mm -hmm. are, I think it was, that was at 30% higher than the national average, I think it was, for suicide rates. And this is because no matter where you are in an industry, if you have a massive demographic of male workers in there it's it's a perfect storm yeah. it's just like if you had 95 percent of your workforce who were all women you know you're going to have big big menopause potential problem yeah. aren't you so yeah. it's 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 exactly the same when it comes to this the sex um the sex of of the man unfortunately so it's definitely something that we need to tackle yeah, and again, this is uh, this brings it back to where we started from at the beginning. In in so much as these these programs, if you're going to do them, make sure you get a return on the time and the money investment that you're putting in by making it targeted, making it specific, making it relevant, uh, and making it in a way that people can engage with. Yeah.
Absolutely. No, it's been fantastic talking to you both today. It's been absolutely amazing. And I think, you know, it's really, really important work that you're doing around this um, and getting men to engage in these programmes. Um, and I don't think, you know, there's enough of this being done at this at this granular level um, with men. So it's fantastic. And, you know, it'd be great if we could see some more of those public health campaigns to maybe bring the awareness of men's health um to that same level as we are with with women's health and menopause and, and yeah. cervical yeah. smears and and all the rest of it yeah. um, but, but i think yeah. we've a few a few years to go yet but it's brilliant that you're kind of championing the bit and um leading the way with that ambassador program so good luck thank you thanks for having us giving us the opportunity to talk about it always you know me and you Emily we can always talk to the cows come home Shirley <laughs> yeah. it's, it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for having us on and you know thank you for, for, for talking about this this program which I, we, we believe will make a huge difference to men's yeah. health within yeah. the workplace you've been listening to the UK Psych Health and Safety Podcast to stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention and the new ISO 45003 standard, follow subscribe to the UK Psych Health and Safety podcast at www.ukpsychhealthandsafety.com.